0: Thank you, Jim. I just want to echo what several of the other speakers have said. It's an honor to be invited to spend time with you. You know what? On a Saturday, it's daunting enough to think that there's so many people that want to be here and want to open God's word. It's even more daunting when you want to listen to me say it. I mean, we've mentioned this a few times, but Jim had said... To to several of us that you know, bring your best sermon. Here's the problem with marketing: sometimes you oversell this stuff. Um, I I don't know if this is my best sermon. I don't know if that's Josh's best or Michael's best. I mean, we'll let you all be the judge of that. Um, I'm more like Josh. I I go with what's on my mind, what's on my heart at the at the particular time. And so my favorites, uh, if you will, um, you know, just fall over and over and over again with me. Um, In Danville, we've got a program where we work with young preachers. And and part of that, we have, we've got a young guy there, Matt Arnold, that'll be with us for the next year. And the first study I always have with them is about grace. Grace is the fundamental building block of everything that we are, that we believe it is our motivating driving factor. If there's nothing else you understand, grace has to be the baseline. If we don't get grace right, we can't get anything else right. So I think it's so vital, vital and important to who we are And what we do, that's why I would say this is my favorite because it's important um, uh, for our our overall understanding. Michael Ray and I were talking uh, in between the break here. So you got four preachers that are, you know, in some ways similar and in some ways, you know, very different in the way we approach things, the way we look at things. But if you stack up these sermons, you'd think we planned it. You'd think that we plan to talk about, you know, what those impressions are in reaching out to the lost, and then building that with understanding that there's a day coming where there's going to be a reckoning, and then how great heaven is. And now the I, I follow with grace that really ties all of these points together, that that puts a nice bow on this for what we are really trying and aspiring to do. Grace is one of those things that in few ways I can say, is amazing. And when I say amazing, it's something that should passionately drive everything we do. We throw out words too much that don't belong. That was an amazing day. I didn't get yelled at at all. That's not amazing. That's just, you know, you just didn't get yelled at today, okay? You know, I had an amazing parking spot. Well, I mean, it was a parking spot. I mean, you know, we try to color things up, More so than they actually are. But when I say grace is amazing, I mean it is absolutely, fundamentally life changing, passionate, pursuing, amazing. And when we get into how amazing our God is, listen, if this doesn't fire you up, I don't know what else to do. And I don't know what else God can do for you when we start to look at this. So throughout this course, the course of this lesson, What I want to do is just tell you so many of the things that are amazing about grace. By no means is this an exhaustive list. I've been threatened to have vegetables thrown at me if if I go too long. I mean, I think there's biblical precedent to preach at least till midnight. Um, But we're just going to spend some time here uh, looking at some of the things that make grace amazing. When we talk about grace, one of the important things is looking at how we use this vernacular. And vernacular is is just terminology, (laughs) When we say grace, where does that show up in language that we use, right? We may talk about being grateful for something. That means that if you do something good for me, I'm grateful for what you did. I'm thankful. I appreciate it. We may be gratified by an experience. The experience was so good that it's gratifying. It's building up. It's been good. We congratulate people about the work that they did. We're gracious sometimes. One of the lessons that we try to teach people, I've been a coach at different points in life, uh, teaching the kids about how to be gracious in defeat. That, you know, you don't, you don't throw yourself around to throw a fit. You, you learn how to win as well as you learn how to lose. We can be gracious at times. If somebody does a really good job and you have a server that takes care of you, you leave what's called a gratuity, a little something extra, because you appreciate the service that you received. In Composition. Now, music's not my thing. Neither is drawing. That whole side of my brain doesn't work as we learned last night playing some games. But there are things called grace notes that are there that aren't part of the core harmony and melody, but they add special enlightenment. And with those grace notes, it embodies and changes where things are. Some of us, if you have a mortgage, you understand that there's a grace period. Mortgage is due on the 1st. It's not really late till the 10th. you got a 10-day grace Period. Well, you're not penalized. We also understand the, the contra side of this, right? Someone falls from grace. You know, there's a laundry list of televangelists that have been out there that have led great churches and what would say when they find out they were involved in some things, well, they've fallen from grace. We've met some people that are ingrate, right? And whether that's an ingrate, someone that may even be a disgrace. And one of my favorites, a legal term, that when you've reached your absolute end with the government, you're a persona non grata, a person without any grace. You're done. You're completely removed. So when we talk about using these terms and trying to understand, when we say grace, what does that mean? The evangelical world will lead you to believe grace is a complete license to do whatever you want, and it means that under every circumstance, God's just going to forgive you, and yes, you shall continue in sin that grace may abound. But that's not the biblical definition of grace. What we understand better in life is a a word that's used. There's a book. I need to give a quick disclaimer before Tara tells on me. Um. There's a book with the same title, What's So Amazing About Grace, by a guy named Philip Yancey. And there's some quotes that I'm going to take throughout the course of this lesson that are from that book. If you haven't read that book, read it. It's good. It'll fire you up. I caution you, Yancey's an evangelical and he's going to go in a far left direction with grace. Read it with some balance back to the scriptures. But understand that there's some truth to a lot of the points that he makes. And one of the words that he uses is he calls it ungrace. Now, ungrace we get, right? That's how we live life. It's a scoreboard. You know, if your team has 12 wins and one losses, you still win the division because you won more than you lost, or you won more than everybody else. We understand balance and scales. In school, the assignments that you get, the tests that you take, you can still get an A but miss the mark in some. But I got more right than I got wrong. I got a percentage that is acceptable that still says that I'm competent, and what I do. So ungrace really says it's that measuring stick. It's the law. It's the math. It's just the numbers. And that, unfortunately, is the way many Christians view the relationship with God. I'm going to try to do some good to balance out my bad. You know, I was, you know, drinking and acting a fool and cussing last week, so I'm going to go sing in church on Sunday. And I'm going to try to balance this out. And we get this idea that somehow we can offset good with the bad that we've done. That I've done 10 bad things, so if I do 15 good things, hey, I've cleaned my ledger up. And and we develop our relationship with God based on that. Now, don't get me wrong, nobody says that. Nobody says that, but we act as if that's exactly what we're trying to do. I've got to work myself out of the hole that I've dug myself in, and we wonder why we can't ever get good footing. Because the truth is, that's not how grace works. That's not how forgiveness works. That's not how mercy works. That's not how any of this stuff works. Grace and God's forgiveness is powerful. It's better than who we are, better than how we think about things. In a lot of ways that Josh explained, trying to give us just a peek into heaven, just, you know, I, I've heard it explained um, before that it's almost, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you've got the little porthole that you look out of, you can just see a little bit of the ocean, and it gets you excited. That that's what the scriptures do. It just gives us a peek through the crack of the door into heaven. And I think with scriptures, we get just a peek of understanding about grace, but grace doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Because we don't do anything that way. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 86 and verse 15. So part of, if some of you have never heard heard me speak, never been in Bible class or stuff that I do. Part of this is uh, that I do it. For whatever reason, I like to tell on myself a lot in these lessons. So, one of the things I do in Bible study, I, I, I don't have a mind that absolutely remembers details. I remember things about it. And so, oftentimes, when I'm studying scriptures and I'm trying to find something, I remember like a couple of words. And you know what the greatest thing about that is? Bible apps with search software, right? And so I go in and I'm like, I know there's a psalm somewhere in here that's, you know, God's slow to anger. It's it's one of them. Here's a funny thing. There's four with this exact same words, the exact same words, this exact same thought from the psalmist. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. God is full of mercy and grace. Yes, this monster God in the Old Testament that's throwing lightning and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and pronouncing evil coming down on Ephraim and Assyria and Samaria and, and we read all this stuff and we think God is just a monster in the Old Testament. Now, this is the same God in the Old Testament. That the psalmist says you're full of mercy and grace and you're slow to anger. Because here, here's what we forget, right? Right? When we go back and we think about the Old Testament, Old Testament history that we learn in our Bible classes, that when God pronounced that judgment, it'd been a hundred years of him begging them to come back. Prophet after prophet after prophet saying, please just turn, just come back to me. Not only will I relent of the coming destruction, I'll give you a blessing. I'll make you great because that's what God wants. Our view of God and grace must be understood in the context that God initially seeks to forgive. Go back and read the first sin. What happens in the first sin in Genesis, right? Eve's talking to a snake. First bad move. I don't know why anybody's hanging out taking advice from a snake. No, so But she's here hanging out talking to a snake, which that's a whole nother lesson of, of things. But she's talking to the snake. The snake's like, hey, this is good. God is trying to play a little trick on you, and God doesn't want you to be as smart as God is. And there's two lines in there that we read too fast. Eve saw that it was good for fruit. What's that second one? Knowing that she could be like God. She took the fruit and she ate. So she takes and she eats. And then, worse, she goes to Adam and says, hey, I got this. Why don't you have something to eat? Adam looks at it. Adam didn't even ask questions. At least she's having a dialogue with the snake. Right? Adam's like, eh, hey, it's good. I, yeah. And I can sympathize. My wife brings me food, I eat it. I don't ask a lot of questions, right? <laughs> so they both, now they've sinned. Now they've committed sin. Now they've separated themselves from God. And now eyes are open. They're naked. They're ashamed. And what do they do? They run and they hide. And while they're running and hiding, what happens? Who comes to get them? God walking around. Where are you at? Why are you hiding from me? Well, we were naked and we were afraid. Who told you he was naked? I'm here. I'm coming to get you. Well, okay, well, God, we we were naked and we made ourselves these little coverings to try and and fix this. But God says, I'll make it for you. God fashions them the coverings. God tells them, you got to get out of the garden. Don't have access to the tree of life anymore. But I'm still going to take care of you. And I'm going to put enmity between you and the snake. And you're going to crush his head and he's going to bruise your heel. And our very first messianic prophecy of God saying, I'm going to fix your mistakes. And I came to get you to fix your mistakes. They didn't come crawling back to God on their hands and knees, begging to get back in, facing the tyrant God that we've built up in the Old Testament. God says, I'm going to come get you. Because why? How did God initially create all of this? What did Josh just get done talking about? So we could walk with him. So we could talk with him. Why? Because we belong to him. Even at our absolute worst. Even when we only had one rule. One of my favorite things on, on ESPN, when they show the clips, you had one job. Dude, you had one job. Just don't touch that tree. You can have everything else you want. You had one job. Most of us, aren't we infuriated when we do that with our kids? How many of us have kids, we give them one rule. Y'all can do anything you want, but don't touch the barbed wire fence. And the kid comes back in, and he's got blood all over him, and he touched the barbed wire fence. It's like, just, ah! <laughs> it's the only thing I asked you not to do. And we get more mad because there was only one rule. We, we're far easier to forgive if we give our little kid 15 rules, and they just forgot one of them and got messed up. But I just gave you one thing. But what does God do? God doesn't wait for the kid to come back in screaming with their hand bloody and and begging for forgiveness and, Mommy, please help me. God goes out and finds us where we are and says, I'm going to fix this. Are there consequences? Absolutely there's consequences, but God's the one that's going to fix it. That's the God that we serve. The first and most amazing thing about grace is that the God that we serve wants to forgive us. I can't say that enough. We should blast that from trumpets of our pulpits every single week. What people should think of when they think of the body of the Lord is this is where salvation is found. This is where forgiveness is found. God wants to forgive. And that's littered everywhere. Does God delight in the death of the wicked? Nope. Isaiah said that. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want to punish. We we read all of these passages in the Old Testament with the pronunciations of destruction. And, And even as Eddie talked about the day of the Lord, sometimes I think we get this terrible picture in our eyes that God is there and saying, I'm coming to get you. You guys wouldn't listen. I'm going to hammer you. But the real picture of the day of the Lord is God with tears in his eyes saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you in. Look what you've made me do. Because at the end of the day, as much of a merciful and gracious Heavenly Father as he is, he's also just. But God doesn't desire justice. God desires grace. He wants to forgive. Justice is going to happen, and Eddie did a great job explaining that today. Justice has got to happen. But God first desires grace. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 15. This is hard for us to understand, I think, because as as Michael pointed out, from time to time, we tend to foolishly get a little pharisaical about some stuff. The Pharisees, as they sit out in Luke chapter 15 in the crowd, they're kind of gritting their teeth, they're fussing. You know, look at him out here with these prostitutes and these tax collectors and all these immoral people. Jesus isn't sitting up at the Sanhedrin. He's not there with the religious body. He's out here in the crowd of a bunch of ruffians. And that's where Jesus is is teaching and looking. and, And you can see them from the crowd just cast disdain upon him. And as Jesus sees them in the back of the crowd, he tells stories of loss. Right? Luke chapter 15 is about loss. And he drops this on him. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What? What? Hold on. right, we've talked about this a little bit. Mike's right brain, right? I'm a math guy. To support my preaching habit, I'm a financial planner. I deal in numbers and math and economics all day, every day. This math is atrocious. What do you mean you're not happy with the 99%? Why are you chasing this one clown? But see, biblical math doesn't make sense. Grace math doesn't make sense. Because even though there are 99 that are safe in the fold, that we would stand up and clap for, we got 99% attendance today. God's worried about the one that's out there. And he tells the story of the lost sheep. Lost sheep doesn't make mathematical sense. Doesn't. Listen to the story. He leaves 99 sheep unattended. Now, you all, I'm sure, have heard lots of lessons about sheep. Sheep are dumb animals, and they get themselves into trouble all the time. Right? So you're going to leave 99 dumb animals on a hill by themselves. Look, if you leave me, Michael, and Josh on a hill by ourselves, we're probably going to get into trouble. And I'd say we're a little bit smarter than sheep. But he leaves those 99 where wolves can come in, where other shepherds can come in and steal those sheep away. He leaves them completely exposed and vulnerable. And he goes after this one dumb sheep that went and got lost. See, in business, we call that shrinkage, Right? There is a certain amount of acceptable loss. If we can retain 99% of our loss, our profits, and we only have 1% loss, business-wise, everybody that's in business and ran a business says that's a good day. I'm happy with 1% shrinkage. But Jesus says, I'm not. I'm going after him, and I'm going to leave the 99. And he goes through the valleys and hills and goes and finds the sheep that's lost and dirty and frightened and afraid. And what's he do? He straps a shot collar to that sheep, drags him back, berating him the whole way back to the pasture, right? What's he do? He picks up that dumb, incorrigible, hateful, non thinking animal and puts him on his shoulders and walks him back. And they rejoice. And they rejoice. And then there's a the lost coin which doesn't make sense either. Why are you tearing up the whole house for some pocket change? Why, you've dumped out the cushions and you're digging and you're running. The rent's not even due. She's just looking for the coin, right? You're tearing stuff up and you, but yet it was precious, yet it was valuable, yet it was worth all the trouble. The second most amazing thing about grace is that God thinks you're worth the trouble. God thinks I'm worth the trouble. God wonders about where I am and what I'm doing. The most amazing thing I've ever experienced in life is to be loved, right? It's not because Diane's still here in the audience. But Diane knows me and all my flaws and how dumb and ignorant and incorrigible and impulsive and all the dumb things that I do, and she loves me anyway. And there are some people that in their life have never experienced that type of love and that type of care and that type of compassion. And so it's a foreign concept to think that somebody loves you. But there are certain things that I could do, certain deal breakers that Diane's done with me. In all of our relationships we have in life, there are certain deal breakers that that relationship's over. But not with God. God knows the stuff that we hide from everybody else. Right? Right? God knows us without makeup, without clothes, at our absolute worst. I heard a comedian one time say, the breadcrumbs that are in the bottom of the toaster, you know, that that last, worst, awful part of us, that's who God knows, and that's who God loves, and that's who God's worried about. And there is a relentless pursuit of God for sinners from Genesis to Revelation not because of how good we are, not because Mike's great or wonderful or holds some great value in the kingdom, but because I belong to him, because I'm his. The parable of the lost son, often we refer to as the prodigal, also paints this picture here, right? The son goes off riotous living there's a couple things that are amazing about this story that break your heart when do you get an inheritance from your parents when do you normally get it when they're dead right so the son says dad i wish you were dead so i could have my money right now and in all instances that we understand death separation his dad was dead to him and he was dead to his father going forward He took that money and he ran off in riotous living. If grace was about mathematics, if it was about a balance sheet, if it was about just counting coins, and the son did that, there's no end to the story. If he didn't go into riotous living, but he became an accountant and set up a small business and did well for himself, this story isn't there. It doesn't make any sense. But the problem is he lost everything. He was down and out. The father considered him dead. One of the other heartbreaking points of this story that has to be inferred is as the son's coming back and he's still a far way off, the father sees him. How's the father able to see him? Because he was looking for him. How many days with eyes filled with tears did the father get up and look out that window and look down that road and hope that was his son? He had written him off for dead long ago because that's the conversation he has with the brother. Your brother that was dead is now alive. We're going to celebrate. But how many days with a broken heart did he look? And did he hope? And did he pray? And did he think? I want him back. And I'd love to have him back in the fold. And as he's coming still a far way off, there's an interesting point in the story where Yancey, who, who's doing some research, is spending time in a Middle Eastern country. Part of the customs of Middle Eastern countries has to do with how you're seen and perceived and the way that you walk, the way you do things. A well-respected landowner, a wealthy man who is powerful would never run after anything. You come to him, okay? You come to him and he stays or he walks very slowly. There is no going off. It would be completely absurd for the father to take off running after him. It doesn't make sense culturally. It violates all cultural principles. But it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. And it's there, the, the people that are in this Middle Eastern country, as, as Yancey's telling them this story, they're just in shock and awe about these details. That how many times have you and I read that story and not ever thought about it? They're in shock and all over these little, no no father would do that. No wealthy, they would not do that. But yet it's God's pursuit after the one that's lost. But he's got a faithful son that's doing a great job running his business. That's why we have the second testimony of the son coming in and saying, wait a minute, dad, I've been here. I didn't fall away. I've been here. And I've ran the farm and I've grown our wealth and I've done very well for you and everything that you've given to me, I've done well with and I've protected and I've honored your name and I've honored our family and my friends never had a party. We didn't kill no fatty calf for me. What about me? What was he doing? Ledger, balance sheet. Look at all my good. And look at all his bad. Shouldn't I be the one rewarded? and what's the father say to him? He says, "Son, everything that I have is still yours. Y- your brother was dead and now he's alive. He's not getting a cut of what's yours. I appreciate everything that you've done, but he's back, and he was dead in the same way that Michael explained the story this morning of, of the Pharisee that reclines. At the table, and is casting doubt on Jesus. If this man were a prophet, and you can see that picture, I I love that story because you can see the picture of what the Pharisee's doing. He's leaning over to one of his buddies, right, and saying, This guy, this is the prophet. If he knew that if he was a prophet, first he'd know who this nasty, vile woman was and wouldn't allow him to touch him. And yet, I want us to think about this, and not to steal too much of Michael's point from earlier, but how many times have you cried? And as you cry and the tears run off your face, is there enough tears there to wet a napkin or to wet a towel? But there were so many tears that there was enough water on Jesus' feet that she mopped it up with her hair. I want you to think about how many tears that is. And how hard she was crying. And, and I love the phrase that Michael used. She poured out her soul. Everything that she ever done, the gravity of her life came out of her eyes. I don't know how we have that many tears. But yet they poured out. And here the Pharisees sitting in judgment. Look at this guy. Look at that prostitute. The brother sitting in judgment. Look at this guy. Now he comes back. He needs to be chastised. She needs to be chastised. That's not how grace works. Grace is about the fact that we go from death to life. We were lost and we've been found. We belong to God and God wants us. Grace is about forgiveness. And it's about the fact that even though we're lost, that God loves the lost. And he loves those souls and he wants us. And my friends, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. But we also have to deal with the fact that grace by its very nature is unfair. It's absolutely unfair. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1. Back to these mathematical atrocities that good accountants are frustrated by. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 1, we have the parable of the, the worker of the vineyard who goes out and hires people throughout the day, right? He goes out to the, to the marketplace initially and he meets with those that are there looking for work and they enter into an employment agreement, right? You work for me all day, I'm going to give you a couple of denira. They say, that's a good deal. Days worth of work, days worth of pay, we're in. And they go and they start working. At the noontime hour, a little bit later on, Guy looks around and says, man, we're not going to finish this up by the end of the day. I'm going to go get me some more workers. So he goes back and he makes the same deal with them. If you work for me for the rest of the day, I'm going to pay you the same denira. And then he goes back at the late hour. And here's the thing, and I I don't know how many of you all have ever, ever been involved in hiring, but when you go a couple of times out to hire people, the people that are still there weren't your first choice. Those people were there that morning. And the Vineyard worker looked at him and said, "Mm, not you guys. I'll take the strong ones. So he's getting the scraps at the end of the day. And he says, same deal, same pay. Now, at the end of the day, they're settling up accounts, right? And the guys that work first, he hands them there to Denira. And he's going down handing everybody else their Denira. This is also why, just as an aside, you're not supposed to discuss wages at work. (laughs) It makes your employer mad. But he's handing out everybody's money, and and the workers at the beginning of the day they start getting together and they form a union. Just kidding. (laughs) And they get together and they say, "Wait a minute, this isn't fair. Them clowns only worked two hours; we worked eight. We should be making more money." And I love the phrase here. This is how God looks at it. Who are you to begrudge my generosity? Aren't I the one paying? If anybody's getting ripped off here, isn't it me? Who are you to begrudge my generosity? If I want to give to whoever I want to give to, you agreed to the same deal. They got a good deal. Everybody's okay. These parables aren't about the climate of the social worker or about economic principles or policies. These parables that Jesus is teaching are to give us some insight as to how God looks. And God's looking to pass out as much grace as possible, to forgive as many as possible, because he doesn't want anybody on the outside at the end of the day. I'm going to ask you this question, and I want you to seriously consider yourselves. And I'm not asking for answers out loud. But if we got to heaven and we're standing around and some people that we didn't think were supposed to be there are there, you going to be mad about that? You going to be mad about that if we look around and there's a denomination or two out there? I'm not saying that they're going to get in, but I'm saying if that's God's choice, i got no reason to be mad about that. But I'm convinced there are brethren that would say, but God, we did everything we could to follow the Bible as close as we possibly could. How could you let them in? That's unfair. I'm not saying that that's how this is going to work at the end of the day. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying and think that you can do anything you want religiously because that's not what the Bible teaches. What I'm saying is it's God's choice who he wants to save and God wants to save everybody. I don't believe that's a license to sin at all and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But if the world could have been saved by perfect bookkeeping, By perfect law keeping, we don't need Jesus. We had Moses. If it was about making sure you just kept everything in line, we really don't need Jesus, do we? What do we need more than the Ten Commandments if what we got to do is perfectly keep the law? We really don't need grace. And I think that's sometimes where we get in trouble with our misunderstanding of grace is we've boiled it down to a New Testament Ten Commandments. And we've got our things that we're supposed to do, we're not supposed to do, and more often than not, they're what we're not supposed to do. If I asked you to be real, real honest with yourself, and I've had these conversations with people before, and ask you how do you know you're a Christian, how do you know you're getting into heaven, if you would answer that statement by telling me all the things that you don't do, I'm going to tell you you don't got it right. Well Mike I know uh, we, I mean we don't have a woman preacher we don't we're not involved in institutionalism we don't have any instrumental music we we don't do this we don't do that we don't do this we don't do that and I'm going to ask you the follow up question well what what do you do Do we define anything by what it's not If I ask you what kind of car do you drive I say you know Josh what kind of car do you drive Would you start that off well it's not a truck it it, it doesn't have eight tires It's not blue, it's not this, it's not that. No, you tell me what it actually is, right? So I'd understand it. But too oftentimes we've gotten so afraid that we've created this system of laws that says, as long as I don't do anything, I'm okay. And that's not, one, how grace works, because we're never going to be able to perfectly keep any of those system of laws. We're always going to mess up. I strive to do the best I can every day, but I'm going to screw something up today. I may screw something up before I get done talking. And it's by grace we are saved through faith. It's the fact that we know we're not going to get it all right. But that's why we go back and we study and we try and we get better. Eddie's the most senior preacher in the room as far as I know. And Eddie will tell you there's things that he better understands today than when he did 20 years ago. And, and things that maybe he had wrong and maybe even taught wrong 20 years ago when he first started out, or I don't know how long you've been preaching, but, and, and we get better. We get a little bit better every year and we read something, then we get some insight and we read something else. And it's like, wow, that's, that's changed some things. I need to go back, right? But based on how sometimes we pigeonhole ourselves and are so afraid to do anything, almost afraid to continue to study things, if I believe so strongly that way, then I almost have to admit if I'd have got hit by a truck 20 years ago, I'd have just been in hell. But that's not it, right? Because there's a growth curve for all of us, and God is wanting to forgive, and it's about our heart, our effort, how hard we're trying. Are we striving? Are we trying to get it right? Are we doing our absolute best that we can, and then God's extending to forgive us? Grace by its very nature is going to be unbelievable. Fair. It's going to be unfair. And that's okay. Because let's ask ourselves another very, very serious question. Who wants fair? I don't want fair. I'm not praying to God for justice because I don't want justice. Why don't I want justice? Romans 6. The wages are sin of death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. I don't want what I owe in for. Because I owe in for death. If I come cash my paycheck at the end of the day, that's it. I want that. I want grace. I want mercy. That's the other thing that's amazing about grace is that it's unfair. I love the fact that it's unfair because I know who I am. I know who I was and I know what I deserve. I'm glad that it's unfair. Next, grace costs nothing for the recipients and everything for the giver. I want you to write that down, and I want you to spend a lot of time thinking about this. There is an economic principle about value. What's something worth? I ought to ask you that question. What's something worth? Michael, what's something worth? What somebody else is willing to pay for it, right? The value of whatever you have is what somebody else is willing to pay for You may have an appraisal on your house, and it says your house is worth $150,000. But if you put your house on the market and all the best offer you get is $100,000, guess what your house is worth? $100,000. Because that's all anybody's willing to pay for it. Here's what I want us to understand with this. God said that this is how bad sin is when he set the value for the only thing that would cover sin. What covers sin? Will the blood of bulls and goats cover sin? Nope. What's going to cover sin? God said, this is how bad sin is, that the only thing that'll pay it off is the innocent blood of my son. That's the only thing that'll pay it off. So God set that value bar high, and then God wrote the check. God's the one that paid for sin. He set the value for it, and he gave everything to get that. See, grace goes against the very the very intuition that we have as human beings. You can't be a murderer and go free. I can't come in here and kill everybody in this room and walk out and say, well, sorry, shucks. Wish I wouldn't have done that. And go off scot-free. We think there's got to be a punishment. And how do we set that punishment? The higher the crime, the higher the cost, right? If I get a speeding ticket, $100 fine. If I murder somebody, I'm spending the rest of my life in jail. Or maybe the death penalty. But this is how God sees sin. This is how God values us because he was willing to give Jesus for us. So in essence, when God decided that Jesus would die for our sins, do you know what God said? You and me are worth it. I've looked at some nice things. Michael and I were having this conversation at lunch about one of their vendors or partners comes in and shows them these really nice jackets. And it's like, hey, I I really like that. And then they gave them the price for it. Michael's like, I don't like it that much. Right? We we see things that are nice, that are valuable, but where do we stop? Right? It's not worth that to me. Right? I'd, I'd love to have this, but for that price, I'm out. But look what God said. God said, I'd love to have you. And yes, I'm willing to write that check for you. I'm willing to cover your sins. I'm willing to give whatever it takes to get you. So this economic principle of value says, this is how bad sin is and this is how valuable I am to God. Valuable enough to leave the 90 and 9. Valuable enough to tear up the house. Valuable enough to go get the son. God says that's how valuable I am. I don't know of anybody in my life that'd be willing to give all that for me. To come get me. To buy me back. To redeem me. When they know what I did was wrong. We'll rally behind our friends that are unjustly accused, won't we? We'll go and maybe have fundraisers and raise bail money and try to get them out of jail because they're unjustly accused and there's no way they could have done this and they're good people and they've caught up in the system and it's a conspiracy and all this other stuff. But what if I told you, yeah, I did it, I killed them. But I need you to sell all your possessions and come and bail me out of jail. What are we going to say to that? You know what? You're going to get what you deserve, right? I ain't sticking my neck out for you. You're a scumbag. You're a murderer. You're a sinner. But God says, I'm going to pay that price. Now, when does God pay that price? When when did God decide to do all this? See, that's the other thing about grace. That's amazing. This is another one I want you to write down, and I want you to think about this stuff. These last two quotes specifically. I just want you to spend some time and think about the words and think about the implications far more than the time we spend together here. Grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and nothing we can do to make God love us less. How many of you, when you hear that, are absolutely terrified that Mike's crazy liberal and gone off the edge? Come on, some of you have given me that look, right? I'll tell our intern here. So Matt, as he's as him and I are studying grace, he gets to this quote and he gets to this point, and he said, "Mike, when I read it, I had to close the book and walk away." He said that just there's no way that that's right. There, there's just no it goes against everything that I believe as a Christian. There's there's just no way that it's it's that easy. And and he walked away and he said he, he wouldn't read the book for the rest of the day. And he comes back the next day, and he says, "All right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start tearing this thing apart." And he starts reading and he starts studying and he's like. Okay, he comes in and and, and we're we're talking, we're having this discussion, he kind of drops it, he said, this is exactly right, here's why. When did God decide that he wanted to save you and me? Ephesians chapter one. Before the foundation of the world, God made that decision. God set the value, the cost, And decided to write the check before you and I were ever a twinkle in anybody's eye. So what that means is God's love for us, God's desire for us, God's care for us was set in stone before he spoke the world into existence. God determined how much he loved us. So there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. I can't be a better Christian or a preacher or an elder or a deacon or someone that goes around like Paul and starts churches all over the world. God doesn't love Paul any more than he loves me. God doesn't love Elijah any more than he loves me. Or Peter or David or fill-in-the-blank character. He says we love, he loves all of us regardless of what we do. Because he decided he would do this for us before the foundation of time. He wants us, and he made the way ready for us to come to him. The only thing left to do is where we are, is our acceptance of God's love. There's, there's another book written by Kyle Eidelman. The book's called Not a Fan. It's a quick read if you get a chance to read it. Again, I give the same disclaimer. It's got some goofy stuff in it but it's got some core principles in it. And one of those core principles is about a defining the relationship moment that all of us have. And think back, there's some of you in this room that haven't dated in a while and thank God, it's been a long time since I've dated. We've been married almost 13 years. But there comes that point in every relationship, right? Where you sit down together and one of you looks at the other one and says, where's this thing going? Are we going anywhere with this? And you sit down and you have to define it. Now for me, Every time that conversation came up, I was gone. We sit down, we've been dating, and unfortunately for me, a lot of times that came up like on date two. Like, I don't even really remember your name yet, and you want to know whether or not we're getting married? Like, I, I don't even know if I like you. And I'm gone. I'm scared of commitment, scared of devotion, scared of being, you know, tied to anything. But there comes a point in every relationship where you have to decide. I'm going to be committed to this, I'm going to stick to this, and I'm going to go forward. But here's what God does on your first introduction to him. God says, I'm committed to you, I love you, and I'm going to take care of everything. And for many people, that's absolutely overwhelming. For many of us, we step back and say, wait a minute. If you didn't have a good, strong family that you grew up in, that you you understood that kind of love... I remember having a Bible study with a young lady that said this. My father was abusive. My mother was was absent. I grew up in a battered and, and crazy home. What do you mean there's a loving heavenly father? What's that even look like? And I remember just being brokenhearted as I talked to her trying to find the words to explain an analogy that would make sense. Because in her life, that never made sense. It never made sense that anyone would care about her for anything unless she could do something for them. You see, that's what's also amazing about God's love is because it doesn't make sense to us because we love based on reciprocity. And you know what that means? It's another one of these fancy words. Terry's looking at me with scorn for using reciprocity. Reciprocity means I love you as long as you do something for me. Michael and I have been friends in this room, I think, looking around longer than anybody else I've known in this room. I love Michael and Terry to death. We met kind of as, as we were... All oh, we had just gotten married. We didn't have any idea what we were doing as married couples, and then we all had kids together, and we didn't know what we were doing that. So we've worked out a lot of, of issues and life problems together because we were log step with each other. And our relationship's built on we've got, you know, we both look at things a little goofy. We've got a weird sense of humor, and both of our wives look at us like we're stupid about half the time. But we have this thing that we share together. If Michael woke up tomorrow and completely changed his character and personality, we'd have a hard time still having that relationship because it's based on that reciprocity. It's based on I give him good, he gives me good, we go back and forth, and that's how the love of most of our relationships are built. If that's severed, if that's cut off, that relationship ends. Think of every failed relationship you've ever had. Isn't that what happens? Somebody stops putting into the relationship. Friends that have drifted away, what happens? You move away, you're living in different places, You stop calling. You try to get together for dinner and you can't. You try to get together and go. And and you just drift further and further and further away until the relationship ends. Right? Because there's no reciprocity. There's no giving back. I'm not putting in. I'm not getting out. It's too much. Too difficult. I'm done with this. I think of friends of mine from high school, from college, churches I've gone to, those relationships have all faded because there's been no reciprocity in the relationship. God says up front, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to take care of you. You take some time to let that sink in. And you let me know when you're ready. Because I'm going to be right here. And not only am I going to be right here, I'm going to come after you. Now, I know that also sounds like a foreign concept. What do you mean God's going to come after me? God's never sent me a text message or an email and said, Hey, Mike, I'd love to see you at church. But what does God do to come after us? What does God do in his relentless pursuit of us? He sends guys like me and Jim and Michael and Charlie and Eddie. And we come into your lives, and we're friends, and we care about you. We put our arm around you, and we tell you about the good that God's done in our lives and how you can have that same love. And then you meet somebody else that also belongs to God, and they tell you about God. And you pick up the Bible, and God screams to you from his word. And over and over and over throughout the course of your life, God's just dripping on you trying to get your attention, trying to get you to look at him, trying to get you to see him. Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 1 and 2, he said, creation screams at you that there's a God. He said, if there were no words, the rocks would cry out and say, look at God. God has put all these things in our lives to draw attention to us. Eddie mentioned about the day of the Lord. Here's the scariest thing that I think of on that day of judgment is that accounting because God's got the records and what if you heard on the day of the Lord Mike you sat through 4,352 invitations and 4,352 times you said no and you sat in your seat and you sat on your hands and then I sent you 37 people throughout the course of your life that loved you, that cared about you, that prayed for you, that begged for you, and you told all of them no. Mike, I did everything I could for you. But you said you didn't want me. And he cast them off to the side. But on Judgment Day, it's not going to be about how God didn't do enough or you didn't have enough opportunities or enough chances. Judgment day for those that are lost is God with tears in his eyes saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, Mike, oh, Mike, what I wouldn't have done for you. What else could I have possibly done? Because here's everything that I did. And I tried with everything that I had to get you. And you didn't want me. You didn't want to have me. You didn't want my love. You didn't want my grace. You didn't want my family. You kept saying no. You see, God loves us more than anything we could ever comprehend, and His love is unchanging. When did Jesus come? Was it in the midst of a revival? Here's an interesting study for you to do sometimes. Try to figure out where the Jews in the the New Testament came from. Because at the end of Malachi, there's no Pharisees, there's no Sadducees, there's no Sanhedrin, and the high priest definitely isn't after the family of Aaron. Where would all those people even come from? Because the religious organization that was there when Jesus came definitely didn't come from the Levitical law. They definitely didn't come from Moses. And they didn't look like anything, even as bad as they were in Malachi, when Malachi said, from God, I wish somebody would just lock the doors because you guys are just I'm making a mockery of this. That's when Jesus came. Not when we were at our best. Not when the people cried out and turned to God. When they were very far away from him. I like it to what denominationalism looks like today. It's made a mockery of the family of God. Grace is not a license to sin. The next thing that's amazing about grace is grace is not a license to sin, but rather the purpose to follow God. You see, where we get sideways with this, and where people that don't take a conscious appreciation of grace go, is they read the first part of Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Period. And they say, yay, grace, wonderful, I'll do whatever I want. But we got to read the rest of that verse. Paul says, may it never be. Remember what happened and why you have grace. Remember what God did for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, this is another part where, you, folks, we've got to read all the way through this stuff. Starting in verse 8, it says, we are saved by grace Through faith, not of our own works, not of anything that we've done, but because of how good God is. Period. And that's where people stop. See, Mike, saved by grace through faith. Doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't need to do anything. I got all this grace, and I can do whatever I want with it, and I can act a fool. See, there's that pesky verse 10 that says, we are his workmanship. We are created for His purpose to will and work for His good pleasure. It says that we belong to God. And that if we'll spend our time thinking about all that God's done for us, there's no preacher anywhere that's going to have to tell you what to do. It's going to scream out of your life. We're not going to have to have personal evangelism classes because when we get the grace of God when we get what God has done for us when we get what a wretched wreck we are without God and understand all the good that God is how can you not tell somebody about that how many of us in this room have come across a great deal or a good coupon right love coupons Come across a great coupon. What do you do? Call everybody. Hey, beef's on sale, 99 cents. Got to get down there. I got a coupon for half off. I'll meet you there. And we, it's a great deal. And we tell everybody we know about it. But yet we've got the cure for what's plaguing our souls. And well, I don't think they'd want that. I don't know if I should tell them. Because we forget, friends. We forget what God has done for us. And we talk ourselves into the fact that we, were, we weren't really all that bad in the first place. Yeah, 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 I know some people committed big capital S sins and they're murderers and thieves and liars and drunkards and all that stuff. But listen, I wasn't ever really that bad. I mean, I didn't really, you know, I may have talked back to mom and dad once or twice, but, you know, I've never really done anything bad. I may have pencil whipped Uncle Sam on my taxes, but I've never done anything bad to really hurt anybody. And we talk ourselves into being not that bad. And if we're not that bad, where are we at? We're reclining at the foot of the table like the Pharisee. And that's why Jesus tells that parable that's there, right? Back to to Michael's uh, example there. And Jesus says, if somebody's forgiven a half a million dollars and another person's given $5, who appreciates it more? The guy that was forgiven much. And he says, yeah, people that are forgiven much appreciate much. People that are forgiven little appreciate it a little but it's a sideways backhanded slap at the Pharisee because the Pharisee thinks, I didn't really get forgiven of that much because I'm a pretty good dude. But if we examine our lives, we are worthless without God and we have extensive value with him. If we'll think about that more and appreciate what God's done for me. See, in my life, I've had the unfortunate experience of being absolutely, totally depraved, lost, knucklehead clown. And I think about every day where I could be without God. There's a friend of mine that every time I talk to him, we don't talk a bunch, maybe once or twice a year. And every time he calls and, and we talk, you know, Diane often asks me, like, why do you, why do you still talk to this clown? And, and we've talked about this a few times. I said, because I am him without God. Been a womanizer and a drunk and in and out of a bunch of problems and trials and issues But that's the path I was on. Minus God, minus good brethren who cared about me, who prayed for me, who literally snatched me out of the fire. That's who I am. And so I talk to them every once in a while so that I understand and am more and more appreciative of all that God's done. But we've got to think about that. Take God out of your life. What's your life look like? And if it doesn't substantially change, folks, reevaluate your life. We've got to reevaluate where we are and who we are. If I say, well, you know, minus God, I'd still be doing the same thing. Not too bad I'd have more free time on Sundays, Wednesday nights. I wouldn't be here on a Saturday listening to this clown. If you took God out of your life, how much would it change? You see, grace is not a license to sin. It's the purpose to follow. It's it's why we do what we do, because God forgives us in spite of us. I got more thing that's amazing about grace. You don't need to be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There's only one thing that the world can't do. It can't offer grace. We get so lost and caught up in the religious world as a whole, has all these missions to cure, to cure the ills of society. But a for-profit business can do it better than any church can ever do it. A for-profit business can build better houses, feed the hungry, heal the sick. They can do it better. What our beacon has to be as the church, as the family of God, has to be the trumpet that says, this is where you find grace. This is where you find forgiveness. There's a story in Yancey's book that I'll close with. That he talks about a friend of his who worked in inner-city Chicago. And he worked in the Department of of Health and Family Services, and his job was to try to help people that were in bad spots and bad scrapes and and to help get them back on their feet through government social programs. And he meets this young woman that comes in and that's completely destitute and has turned to a life of prostitution. Not only in her life of prostitution, but what she found out is With her daughter, her young daughter, she could make more money prostituting out her daughter than she could make. Make more money in an hour with her daughter than she could make in an entire night. So she started prostituting out her daughter. And the man is just taken back and he's wrecked as he hears this terrible situation. And and as he's filling out the paperwork to try to get her some help and stuff, he says to her, ma'am, what you really need, I can help you with the government stuff. What you really need to do is, is to find a church, to find people that can help you with the spiritual side of this. And her comment cut me deep. Why would I go to a church? I've got enough problems of my own. And as I read those words, I was almost in tears thinking, is that what the world sees as the church? Do they see it as a safe haven where you can come and you can find forgiveness and you can find rehabilitation? Or do they see it as a place where you come and we just pound on you about all the bad stuff you've been doing? Are we there to help people get to God or to judge them for why they're not already there? It'd be like going to a hospital and them yelling at you for being sick. Hey, how'd you get sick in the first place? You know, if you'd have just took your vitamins and you just would have washed your hands and you had done all this stuff, you wouldn't be sick. No, what happens when we go to the hospital? They diagnose the illness and help you find a cure, right? We have to create safe havens for people. I find it very, very interesting that if that's the view that people have of the church, the world... Forget we can argue all kinds of different things about what we really stand for and all this other nonsense, but perception is reality. If people perceive us to be that way, we are that way. Doesn't matter what our motto is. Perception is reality. But I find it very interesting that prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and the most despicable of the world fled to Jesus, not away from him. I find it very interesting in the New Testament that that prostitute that came and wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair wasn't worried about what he had to say. Because what was Jesus' response to them? Go and sin no more. You found forgiveness. Now go and sin no more. Let's talk about rehabilitation. Let's talk about how to get you from here. We can't do anything about your past other than help you find forgiveness. That's all we can do. Right? I can't undo any of your sins from the past. Jesus can't undo any of your sins from the past. He can forgive you and we can help you move forward. The last thing that's so amazing about grace is that the family of God is a beacon of grace. And we should shout from our pulpits, from everything that we do, that here's where you find God and here's where you find forgiveness. And it's amazing. Thank you.